Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. What's my story? In 2007, I was divorced, in debt, stuck in a soul-sucking job, desperate to have a meaningful, fulfilling life, but not sure where to begin. I made a simple choice at the time, to start honoring my yes and to start speaking my no. Consequences be damned. After all, how could my life possibly get any worse? I began the long path of becoming a professional songwriter, finding my fearless voice along the way. Now, I'm living my dream life as a husband, father, and professional storyteller. Rebecca Balcarsal's debut novel, The Other Half of Happy, was named by Booklist as one of last year's top 10 first novels. Loosely based upon her experiences growing up as an outsider to her Latinx heritage, she describes the story as the book of her heart. In this episode, we'll learn how Rebecca overcame years of rejection and limiting self-beliefs around writing to become an acclaimed poet and storyteller. Rebecca Balcarsal, welcome to The Fearless Storyteller. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm excited you reached out to be on the show, especially after I saw what you were up to. And for people who may not know who you are, um, what would you like to say about yourself? Well, um, I'm excited that I'm now an author. And that just happened in 2019 with my first novel coming out. Mm. And in my day job, I'm also a community college English teacher. And I really love the mission of what I do and um, like, my, like my students and I like talking about writing and mm. like sharing all my secrets with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so what, uh, curiosity, what is the mission? What do you consider a mission of what you do in your day job to be? I think students come to a community college hoping for a fresh start sometimes mm. or um, sometimes the life has surprised them and and so coming um, is a way to get back into school or to to start school for the first time after an absence um, or you know of course we get folks right out of high school as well who want to save money but yeah. I really think the affordability is the big plus for a community college and that lets everyone come mm. explore new things cheaply <laughs> and get their credits if that's their goal uh, efficiently and and cheaply and i and i think the quality is excellent too mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. the professors are real professors and not graduate students you know so yeah <laughs> I, yeah just providing that quality education affordably that's letting people, you know, start their life in a new direction. That's what makes it exciting. Yeah, I, I had the pleasure of attending community college and getting my AA degree before I went to the big capital U University. Yeah. And definitely that was my experience. It was a melting pot, people of all ages and people coming to school from overseas and really the the quality of education was a lot better at the community college than it was at the university pretty consistently so i'm so glad you had a good experience yeah and so you also write poetry i did I notice do. that and so how did you get from writing poetry to taking on the, a novel wow it was a real project um <laughs> So I took a community college, as it happens, a creative writing class mm. as a young woman. And I thought that I would not like the poetry in the class, that, you know, we would do some other things in the poetry. I would just kind of, you know, stumble through. But I loved the poetry. 
And so I started pursuing that. And for many years, I wrote and I, I got a master's degree in poetry. Mm. And, and I read a lot of books of poems. And I just steeped myself in, you know, metaphor and language and the kind of insights that poetry tries to offer us about how to live in this, um, in this world. And um, so I really threw myself into poetry and I wasn't expecting to ever branch out into mm. fiction again. But when I started work on a second book of poems, I wanted to do something sort of different. And I was hearing the voice of this 12 year old girl in my head who was a lot like me. She's bicultural. Mm. She's half Latina and then half, I guess, white. And she just had a lot to say. And so I was writing all these poems in her voice. And mm. when I sent this stack of poems to an agent, she said, well, um, you know, I don't really publish books of poems, but if you want to turn this into a novel, I can help you get that published. Mm. So I had to think, you know, what, what is my audience? Do, do I want to try to reach a broader spectrum of the world you know the poets poets are read mostly by other poets <laughs> so <laughs> um, which is a lovely group of people but if this voice was going to speak to uh, more people i was going to have to change it into a novel and so i i said you know what i'll take a summer and i'll try to do it and when i sent the new version my agent became my agent and she said you know what i'll sign you on and i think we can try to sell it Nice. And so was it, was it pretty much all the work done over that summer and in, in figuring that out and making I, it a thing? I wish it were. <laughs> if it <had> been. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I made a mental shift at that time to turn toward the storytelling aspect, but much work lay ahead. Mm. Um, I rewrote the book many more times, top to bottom, um, at first with my agent, and later when it did sell, uh, mm. still it was rewriting even more with the editor at Chronicle mm. Books. And I tell you what, that's one of the hardest things I've ever done. Mm. I, it took a lot, of, um, a, a lot of flexibility and humility on my part to see how we were gonna craft this so that a reader could have the fullest, richest experience. Um, but that my original poem, some of that language was going to be too rich for mm. a, a novel. And so I had to strip out some of those lovely lines, but then we retained a whole lot of it too. But there was a lot of work between the poetry version and the novel finished mm. version. You're saying, it feels like you're saying that a lot of that language stayed in there until it reached the publishing, the editor at the publisher. Yes, I'm, I'm happy to say I can point to the lines in every <laughs> chapter that came from those original poems. Um, it, the other thing is that the poems were more like an adult looking back on memories, whereas the novel is the 12-year-old talking in real time as if yeah. everything is happening in present tense. So everything has to be in a language that she would use realistically and, and authentically. So yeah. that's another kind of shift that I had to make. And it challenged me. And mm. I grew as a writer, and I'm very happy with the book. So it turns out that an editor is a brilliant person who if they're you know if the heart of the book is speaking to them mm. then they can guide you to reveal it more and more mm. and not distort it you know people i think creative people worry that someone is going to distort my my vision my voice but i felt that really my editor brought out the voice mm. you mentioned writing several drafts and it being a learning process and you know, particularly maybe accessing that 12-year-old voice in an authentic way. And what did you learn? Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I think one thing I learned is that 
what is in my head is not necessarily on the page. Mm. So I would, you know, I wrote about um, the mother and I thought the mother was a very, um, like a put together person, a functional adult who's busy and she helps her daughter, the main character, but she's not in the way. And my editor said, you know what? Your mother is coming off as cold. Mm. And at first I thought, well, I just want to say no. You know, no, she's not cold. <laughs> but mm-hmm. what, what revision taught me is that, you know what? If she's reading as cold, I can't really say no, she's not cold. I can say that I meant for her to be not cold. <laughs> right. But, you know, so I had to understand that there's this objectivity that the editor has that I don't have because I'm so close to the work. I need some distance. Mm. And she provided that distance. So I was able to change the mother to add some gestures and change some of what she said just to bring out the warmth that I pictured mm-hmm. <laughs> that was actually not coming out in the in the typing, you know. So that's one thing I learned that my internal view of what's happening on the page is not accurate um, and I need the objectivity of an outsider to understand what's really on the page and then how to how to change it how to fix it mm-hmm. that's interesting mm-hmm. and for it sounds like like a lot of this is even more personal because in a way you're connecting to this story from part of your past line right you're channeling your history into this it sounds like yes yes there was there is a lot of autobiographical material in the book and one one thing that was very hard for me was to infuse the amount of conflict needed to sustain a story because my family is not full of a lot of conflict Mm. Um, so the father in the story had to um you know, come to a point of crisis where he was angry that his daughter would not embrace her heritage more. And he he's from Guatemala and my real father is from Guatemala. Mm. And I just kept thinking, well, my dad wouldn't get mad at me, <laughs> but this is where we have a, a separation between the piece of art that you're making for other people to experience. And then my this is where autobiography ends, right? And fiction yeah. begins. Have your family read this story? Yes, they they have and they really love it. I'm happy to say. I'm relieved to say. <laughs> <laughs> what were you worried they would how they would receive it? Well, um, you know, I worried that they would read into it too much, you mm. know, that they would say, Oh, that's just like me, or you know, I I, I think this person in the book is this real life person out here. And, you know, the characters in the book are based on real people, but they are not copies of the people. So I worried that some people would um, think I had portrayed them and maybe not portrayed them well or flatteringly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, but most people are really, well, all my whole family is absolutely pleased and proud Um, I had a message just yesterday from a cousin. Her son is reading the book and she said, I noticed that one of the characters has the same name as my father, which would be my uncle. And I Mm. said, yes, I did that on purpose. He, he is named after your father. Um, And she was just so touched by that. And, Mm. and there's a scene that takes place in Guatemala that's based on her home and a, kind of a gathering, a party that we had there. And I said, you know what? The last scene is based on your house and my memory of that uh, family time. And she said, oh, I'm so excited to get to that part. I'm, I haven't gotten to the end yet. And so it's, it's actually been a way to connect with family. Mm. Oh, that sounds lovely. I suppose you wouldn't be able to predict like how it would have landed with them if you hadn't added those dramatic touches that maybe weren't present in real life. Yeah, it is hard to know. 
I did have another cousin who um, whose family is also portrayed to an extent in the book. Um, my main character goes to visit Hispanic cousins, so her her father's side, and she doesn't know how to make a tortilla. Um, she doesn't speak both languages, Spanish and English. Um, she says everyone else can switch languages like switching bike speeds, but I can't. You know. So she's there visiting the cousins, and and her aunt, her tia, does teach her how to make a tortilla. And she she doesn't learn Spanish from them exactly, but she gets a taste of the culture in a fun way. Mm. And that is based on my real um, relatives who live nearby. And I was able to talk to my real cousin and about it, and she said, you know, reading this brought back so many memories of our childhood and it made it so sweet and it made me want to have coffee with you. And (laughs) (laughs) so it has been this, this lovely point of connection. Right. And your character, I got got to preview a little bit of it comes, does come across as sweet and hopeful. Yeah. Tell me more about why this was the story to tell, the first novel to write. Like, what about this theme or this 12-year-old version of you was so important for you to get out or share with others? Wow, I think, you know, this is the book of my heart. It, It really is the story I needed to tell or needed to tell first. Uh, And I think it's because... Um, as happy and wholesome as my upbringing was, and I was very lucky that way um, to be surrounded by loving people, uh, there were moments of loss um, that came from this bicultural situation. There's also a lot of richness and, and um, you know, kind of a doubling of references and languages and music that's a a definite plus, you know, to having a foot in both worlds. But I think about a moment when my grandparents, my, my father's abuelos, right? My abuelos, my grandparents came from Guatemala Mm -hmm. and they flew all the way to Texas and stood in our living room. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get to know them, but I couldn't Mm -hmm. because I spoke so little Spanish and they spoke so little English that there was no way to really talk. And even translation, you know, relying on someone else, it's clunky, it's slow. So the adults were just talking over my head and I was about 10 and I thought, well, this this is sad. (laughs) Um, My grandfather was famous for telling jokes and I couldn't, understand a joke in Spanish, you know, I still have trouble with that. So there was this sense of missing out on one half of my family. And by writing the book, I think I healed some of that, Mm -hmm. Um, especially toward the end. The main character actually goes to Guatemala, something she's been avoiding the whole time. But she goes and that is a very healing moment for her and also for me. Hmm. I guess one question that comes to mind, you know, in that, because I totally, I get that, that sense of loss and missing out and, you know, not getting to know people while they're there is profound. And hmm. it sounds like there was some distancing from the culture that kind of took place that wasn't really your choice too, right? That's very true. Um, So my dad immigrated to the United States in 1968 and my mother married him. And so that's how that happened. Um, My mom, sweetly enough, was in the Peace Corps and was sent to Guatemala. So that's how they met. Uh And um, it's such a sweet story. And, you know, but then he moved from the equator to Iowa and... (laughs) In November, <laughs> and, um, it, it was a, a huge change for him. And of course, one of his big priorities was to learn English. And for that reason, Spanish turned into the, 
the secret language that mom and dad would speak when they didn't want me to know what was going on. <laughs> uh. And the whole, the cultural uh, references were erased for some years because Iowa was a very monocultural place at that time. Mm. And um, there were no other Spanish speakers in the whole town except the, the college Spanish teacher who was married to the high school Spanish teacher. So those, those were the two other people um, that my parents could speak with in Spanish. And so for me, I was growing up very Americanized and really not appreciating this, this whole other wing of, of, you know, my parents' lives and, and what, in my own life, really, we did have, you know, decorations in the home from Guatemala. Um, You know, gifts came to me from there, a doll, you know, dressed in the native clothing. But it just wasn't part of my, um, you know, it wasn't prioritized in any way. And it wasn't until later that I realized well, hey, I, I would like to go back and reclaim some of this. Mm. And we moved to Texas in the 80s, and that was a culture shift compared to Iowa. And so suddenly there were tortillas in the store, and there were other Spanish speakers readily at hand. And so that was the first moment when I thought, hey, I, I could be part of of two worlds and not just one, but it wasn't really till adulthood that I started to truly want to reclaim and reconnect with my heritage. Yeah. And I imagine that's, you know, kind of a big theme, a universal theme for anybody who um, is a child of immigration in that process. And I can see why that would be something somebody would want to publish. And put out there. Um, you know, I do hope that kids and folks with that experience will especially relate to the book. But I think all of us have that sense of wanting to belong, um, feeling mm-hmm. out of place, uh, and disconnected with certain parts of ourselves or certain aspects yeah. of our family. Um, so I hope there's a universal uh, emotional thread in the book, too, that, that everyone can relate to. Yeah, and if you don't mind me asking, were, were there particular elements, you know, culturally that you, you started to pick up on when, once you moved to Texas um, that maybe you felt you didn't have enough of or you wanted? Like, was there something that pulled to you in particular? You know, music might it comes to mind. Um, my dad would play these marimba records, you know, because marimba is the great uh, instrument of Guatemala. But when we moved to Texas, I mean, I heard mostly Mexican music, but still the kind of the kind of music my dad listened to was now coming out of pickup truck windows, and <laughs> uh, it was on television, it was on radio. Um, and so I thought, Ooh, my friends are listening to, you know, air supply. Uh, this is the eighties. Um, and, um, I don't know, Joan Jett or something. I, and I, but I didn't really, um, get into my own popular music scene. I was, I was kind of more interested in the, in this Hispanic music and in American folk music too, but, But um, my parents sang and my dad played the guitar. And so I I listened to them and it was always in Spanish. So another thing that changed in Texas is that I started taking Spanish in school and that connected me more to the lyrics of the music too, that I started to understand these songs I had been hearing all my life. I really didn't know what they meant. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And some of them I had even memorized myself. And I could sing right along with them, but I didn't know what I was saying. So um, just the prevalence of the language and the music were aspects of Texas that really um, 
like helped me to to suddenly look up and say, hey, I want to know. I want to know what I'm saying in this song. Yeah. And it's, you know, I suppose it makes sense. It's all prelude to to you getting into poetry and, and mm-hmm. richness of language that you were drew by lyrics. Yes, that yeah. that's true. And translation also became an interest of mine. Um, in my graduate program, I looked at translation very closely and actually looked at poems that had been translated from Spanish to English and then made my own translations. And it's really a tough thing. And to some extent, it's impossible. Mm. You know, we have to admit it's kind of a, you always get closer and closer, but you never arrive type of a <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I liked that challenge. And I, um, I noticed in my family that, like with the song lyrics, I might ask, oh, hey, mom, what does that line mean? And so my mom would translate, in, you know, in a short phrase. And my dad would say, no, 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 no. You're, you're missing the whole flavor. No, no. And then he would provide this paragraph of an explanation <laughs> about one line. <laughs> and I would think, okay, so all of that paragraph of associations and flavor is, is packed into this little line. How, how could you ever translate it? Yeah. And that was kind of his point. You, you really can't, but, you know, we can approach and it's, it's worth translating. Translating is so, um, we're so dependent on it really for yeah. so much uh, wonderful literature. So we have to have it, but, but my dad would always say, nah, it's a, it's a failed project. <laughs> well, and I suppose even with native language, there's still a layer of translation that occurs, which is mm-hmm. applying your own interpretation or identifying the metaphor, or yes. maybe applying your own metaphor to it, right? Based yes. on the spirit and intention and the feeling. And Reading that. is a translation already of from the author to your to the reader or the listener to the you know the composer to the listener yes yes the first reading is a a translation of sorts yeah so talk to me about this circle you did around maybe when you were a child and telling yourself you couldn't be a writer because that's something you told me privately and yet somehow you had this journey where you came around. Yes. Oh, I, for some reason, um, when I was a seventh grader, um, I said this to myself, my, my, um, seventh grade teacher assigned a short story and I was working on it. And I vividly remember where I was sitting, the chair and the pen and the paper and, um, and I loved imagining this kind of movie in my head of a character. And I loved writing down what he was doing and saying and exploring his whole emotional adventure that he was having. Um, so I just, I loved writing. And, but for some reason, right in that same moment, I said to myself, you can't be a writer. And... I'm not sure where I absorbed that idea. My parents overtly always said, well, you can be anything, you know, you can be a president, you can be a doctor. But I think I had absorbed somehow that writing was not a reliable profession Mm -hmm. or that I was supposed to be, um, I was supposed to have a doctorate degree and, like the plan for my life seemed to seemed to be to to achieve a high level ed- education and to be an important person and somehow writer didn't fit the that little path and that picture that i had absorbed so um so i left writing behind i i mean i i still read a lot i was a big reader always and um i just kind of went to college like I was supposed to, and and I love being a student anyway, uh, so that was fine. 
but um, eventually I kind of, like a lot of, you know, second year college students, I thought, wait a minute, is this what I really want to do? Is this the direction I really want to go? I thought I was going to become a psychologist. Mm. And I have great respect for psychologists, but I think it's better that I did not <laughs> become one. Um, it occurred to me as I was taking some of those classes that it was actually a science. And I realized, wait a minute, how did I get into a science? I'm not, <laughs> that's not my strength. <laughs> so um, then for medical reasons, I, I had a thyroid issue come up and I had to drop out of school. Mm. And I thought, oh no, my life is ending. How am I going to get back on track? I'm a failure. And I really had to fight some of those voices and renew myself. So when I went back to school, it was to the community college. And so um, I went to the very college where I now teach. <laughs> and I took the creative writing class where I previously said I thought I would just be interested in fiction only. And then I got taken with poetry. But it wasn't until that class that I re connected with the joy of writing and I took it just for fun not it wasn't part of my degree plan and I was so lost right then I didn't have a degree plan <laughs> but this accident turned out to be the new direction mm. yeah that's what we call a happy accident <laughs> yes, yes. there's something perhaps poetic about um, being staff staff and faculty at the place where you reclaimed your love for writing it is isn't it and you know what else my the teacher of that class um she remembered me years later so it took me about 10 years to get on through school and get a master's degree to be qualified to to teach there and i called her up and said, you know what, I have this master's degree now. I could, you know, I could like visit your class if you wanted. And she was very gracious and said, sure, come. And after I kind of took over the class one evening or part of the class, she said, you know, I bet we can find something for you to do around here. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it wasn't her personal decision. I mean, the department chair had to, uh, interview me, etc. But I was able to teach a class at first, you know, yeah. and eventually I came on full time. And now, poignantly, the office that I have is the same office of this teacher that I originally had. <laughs> um, and she also was the creator editor of the literary journal that the for students. And she encouraged me to submit my work when I was a student. And my first publication was in the little student journal. And I now edit that journal. And I try to give that same opportunity to, to our new student writers. Mm. So it's super sweet. <laughs> that is super sweet. And yeah. Speaking of those student writers, um, yeah, editing, what is it like? What's it like? getting your hands on somebody else's story and being, because I guess I'm backing into this question, but I'm aware that you've come through this like background where you subject yourself to criticism a lot, right? And, yes. and editing and approval and gatekeepers. And here you are, right? <laughs> Perhaps with a little more sensitivity. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> It's true. I'm very aware that our students are sharing a deep part of themselves when they share their work with us. Mm. Um, and I have a group of folks who read the submissions to the journal, but um, I try to be extremely positive about things that work in their pieces. Um, and I start with that. And then, and then I slip in some suggestions and, I think my own experience being edited has taught me that if I just reflect back to the student what my reading experience is, 
very similar to what my editor did for me when she said, well, you know what? The mother seems cold. Is that what you meant to do? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, no, I, that's not what I meant. So I do something similar with students now where I say, okay, well, this word makes me think of, um, you know, darkness and rain. It, do you want darkness and rain right there? And they might say, well, yes, that, that's what I'm going for. And so I can say, okay, good. And then if yeah. they say, well, no, that's not what I'm going for, I can say, well, you know, I'm just one reader, <laughs> but, but this is where my mind went. And I, I have changed how I critique and how I give feedback to be more reflective that way. Mm. Not As a result that, of your own process. Yes, coming out of being subjected to it myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking of gatekeepers, in your story, right? Like there's this other piece where you rekindled your love and then decided you wanted to move on and get more education in that direction. And was that an easy process? It was not. Um, So it took some courage to take my own writing seriously. And that very first class was that rekindling of the love, but I didn't, I I kept writing, but I wasn't quite sure what I should be doing. Should I be submitting to journals to be published? Um, Should I pursue a degree? And I thought, well, I'm going to try to do a little of both. Um, But really to pursue creative writing, I'm, I'd like to do a master of fine arts in creative writing. And Bennington College turned out to be one of the places where um, as they have a low residency program. So it's a place where you can go without spending, like living for two years in one place. And I was already a young mother with toddlers at home. So I could not go and just live at college, you know, on campus. Mm. Um, So I applied and this program was very special because, um, I had actually not finished my bachelor's degree yet and they would accept you if, if your writing was strong enough, they would overlook the lack of a bachelor's degree. Mm. And I had a lot of hours at college hours, 90 or something, but not, I did not have the degree yet. So I had this little inferiority feeling because I thought, well, I don't have a degree and I'm not a very experienced writer yet, but I've been, I've been trying to write. I had a few little publications. I'm going to apply. So I applied and I got rejected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, it was just a form letter. And I thought, oh, okay, fine. Maybe this is not the path for me. Maybe writing is just, you know, it's going to be a hobby. And I, I'm going to have to get some other credential. I, I'm going to need a grown up job, you know. Um, but about a few months later, they had another enrollment period where you could apply again. And I thought, well, I'm not going to apply again. It's really expensive. It costs $50 just to apply. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we didn't have a lot of money either. I mean, that, that was uh, the one night out to eat per month or something was that $50. So I thought, no. I, I, I don't think I better do this. And at the same time, I was, I was still writing poems. Um, in between those two um, enrollment periods, I had been published a couple more times, just a poem here or there. Yeah. Um, and then my, my ex-husband, or I like to call him my husband, because he, <laughs> he was my husband, and I really thank him for this. He said, you should apply. You, you have been taking your writing more seriously. You have more to say uh, on the little essay thing you have to write. And it was true. I had been not only submitting, but participating in my community with more poets, uh, going to open mic events and helping um, critique groups and just being more active in my writing community. So I applied again and I sent some of the same poems, (laughs) but I had a much more colorful essay to include this time about my, my life as a writer in my community. And this time 
not only was I accepted, but I received one of the two scholarships that they offer each semester. Mm. So that was a stunning moment. <laughs> and I was really glad that I had in between times that I had just kept on writing and not, not delayed, you know, not waited for them to tell me, you have permission to be a writer. I just went ahead and did it. And yeah. then lo and behold, they affirmed it, but I was already on my way. So what did you learn in an MFA program? Like what, which parts were valuable and maybe were there parts that were different than your expectations? The very best thing was the community and the people. Um, meeting other writers at many different stages in their kind of success arc, you know, um, some of them were brand new and seemed to just be very talented and others had been publishing quite a bit. And But we were all there to share and learn and read. It was very stimulating and I read lots of books, about 30 books every semester. So that was great. Um, I did not get a lot of publishing information or coaching about how to break in to the commercial industry. I don't think the, the you know, Bennington, what, that wasn't their aim, but it was something students wished for. <laughs> um, but the truth is, we were there to learn and to experiment and just create bonds, you know, have um, that feeling of camaraderie. And it turned out that that really was the most important part. And I would say that when I graduated, I felt that I could call myself a writer legitimately, um, even though I had gone ahead and tried to live a writing kind of life and a creative life. I, it really was nice to have that degree to be able to say to other people, yes, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm saying it with a straight face now because <laughs> I have this credential. Um, but I really enjoyed the, the, the sense of being among other writers the most during the program. Yeah. The community is uh, yeah. a special thing. Yeah. Yeah, it is. What's next? Ooh, well, I am working on another novel. And this, this character too is bicultural. Um, but this time she is more of a math science kid and she loves to program computers. Um, but her life is about to change dramatically because her father has a secret. And I'll go ahead and reveal that um, I, in real life, I have a half-sister, a child that my father had before meeting my mother. Mm. And so she's older than I am. And it turns out that she is delightful. We've met her on several occasions and brought her to visit. Oh, was and this a surprise in your adult life? Yes. Yeah. No one knew about her. Um, my father did not know about her until she was already over 40. Wow. Um, and I, and of course the rest of us did not either. So um, this was a, a surprise and, and a pleasant one as it turned out, but um, it got me thinking and imagining now, what if, what if we had known about her? Um, what if she had come to live with us? What would that have been like? And what a challenge that might've been for the whole family, but especially for me. Mm. And so my new novel is going to explore some of that, you know, in an imaginative space, um, something that did not happen, but, but I, I'm enjoying imagining what, what it might've been like. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, you, you, again, you've taken this very personal angle and you're keeping it in that, um, coming of age voice, I guess I'd say. Yes, yes. It'll what, be. It, what is it What is it about that age in particular that is drawing you to writing? Oh, you know, that is such a magical age. Um, here are young people 
who are just waking up to how big the world is um, and looking at their place in it. And they're also waking up to their own potentials. Um, they're seeing themselves as individuals, which, which means separating from their parents a little more, um, peers are becoming more important, but, but I'm, of course, my character is in the first book, 12, and in this book, actually 11. So they're not in a rebellious moment yet. They're not, they're not having to push back um, to develop their identities quite so harshly as, you know, maybe a 16-year-old might. But they are just becoming aware that they are a person who has their own ideas. And, and at the same time, they're noticing outwardly that the world is bigger than just their home and their family. So it's an exciting, it's an exciting time. I'm, I'm just fascinated by kids that age. And, and I remember being that age and, and having a sense of wonder a lot of the time. So I love to capture that sense of wonder in the books, or I hope I am. <laughs> yeah, and, and you mentioned you had little ones when you were applying to get into the MFA program. Mm -hmm. And did you ever think about, like, think about how you wanted to shape their their perceptions of their self-worth or their dreams or mm -hmm. those things as you were taking your own actions to invest in yourself? Yes. Oh, that's, that's such a good question. I mean, as a parent, you're always hoping to help your children discover themselves or, or um, come into their own, um, to have the courage to be themselves. But at the same time, they're not sure who that would be, because mm -hmm. <laughs> they're still forming. But, um, but yeah, I, I was a very conscientious, maybe like book reading parent, like reading all the parent books, I mean, and, and trying to do it right. And finally, I felt like, well, you know what? I just love them. And that's going to have to be enough, <laughs> even if I mess up <laughs> in so many ways, they'll know that I really do not only just love them in an emotional attachment kind of way, but I support whatever, you know, makes their soul bloom, you know, that, that I'm there for, for that, to support that and to offer a lot of options about what that might be. And, but um, yeah, I think about my own kids as I write, even though now they're older than that, they're in their twenties. Um, I still think, have that um and you're always a parent you know no matter how old they are <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I still hope that i'm that kind of um that playing that role in their life to to like open doors and and support their exploration it's a little scary because now they are going off in directions i wouldn't necessarily have expected or you know but i'm I'm trusting that they have their own inner development just as I did and yeah. that it will all lead where it's supposed to. Yeah. yeah, that's great. And you mentioned that magical age and as you were talking about that, I, it occurred to me that we maybe we have a second magical age, right? which is when we give ourselves permission to, to be our true selves and, and, I like that. Yeah, that's, that's true. And I guess that could happen at any chronological time. Yeah, but maybe that's why people like reading, you know, younger fiction as well. Mm. Kind of reconnecting with that finding self. Yeah, yeah. I sure like reading books about people that age. I'm really enjoying exactly that element finding self yeah yeah beautiful well for people who want to find you rebecca how can they do that well i'm i have a website 
Um, and it's just RebeccaBallCarcel.com. And I love to hear from folks. There's a way to email me there. And I also have a web or a YouTube channel. Hmm. And there I'm called the Six Minute Scholar, even though almost none of the videos are six minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you intended that once upon a time. Yeah, that was the original, you know, intent. But something small and achievable, right? <laughs> it sounded that way, yeah. And then uh, it's more like sixteen minute scholar, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> too late to rebrand. <laughs> yeah, too late. Um, but yes, it's pretty easy to find me, and I'm also on Twitter. And I have an author page on Facebook and I'm really on Instagram. I'm not, I haven't got the hang of Instagram, but I am there <laughs> and I'm learning. So. Yeah. Well, Rebecca, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Well, it's been a pleasure for me. Thank you so much. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the fearless storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast. <laughs>